Well, the title of my message this morning is pretty simple. It's called Our Foolish Message. Our Foolish Message. Isn't it amazing that the message that we carry as Christians to most of the world, much of the world, is considered nothing but a foolish message? Before we get back to the text we're going to look at, I want to ask a a very simple question, and you can answer it in your mind. Why do we exist? Not you as an individual. Why does Victory Christian Church exist? What's our purpose? What's our mission? Did there really need to be another church in Ballotin or southwest Minnesota? Why do we exist? Well, hopefully it was God's plan. But sadly, sometimes we kind of fall into this trap of thinking maybe we exist just so we have a place to gather on Sunday morning. Or do you believe it exists so you have a place to go on Sunday morning so you a little bit feel a little bit better about yourself and your conscience is a little cleared because you did your religious duty? Maybe for some of us at different times, it's uh, a place we come to socialize, hang out with some nice people, or mostly nice people. Hopefully, none of those would be your answer to that question, why we exist. I want to tell you why we exist. And we believe God has laid this on our hearts as to why we exist. We believe that victory exists to help you and to help me discover and experience the abundant life in Christ. That's why we exist. To help you and to help me discover, first of all, and then experience very practically in our daily walk what it means to have the abundant life available in Christ. Victory is full of people. If you would look around, and I know we've got a lot of newer faces over the last year or two. If you would look around and and all of a sudden you were able to see everybody's story, because we've all got one. Some of you might be pretty shocked. Some of you might think, you're the only one in here that's got an ugly story. That's not true. There's a whole lot of ugly stories. I shouldn't say it that way. The beginning of our stories are ugly. The end of the story is victorious. Because we have discovered and are beginning to experience in greater and greater ways the abundant life in Christ. That's why we're here. Now, that won't happen mystically or magically just because we walk in a door of a building or just because we hang out with a few of the people from the church. You know, it's like anything with God. God is all-powerful and He can supersede anything that humans would try to prevent or try to do. I get that. But the reality is, God has given us all a free will, even as part of his being sovereign. So when I say something like, we exist to help you discover and experience the abundant life in Christ, I know and I hope you realize there are certain things that you and I have to do to experience that. And at Victory Church, we think there are two primary things that you need to do that will accelerate you along that path of experiencing the abundant life in Christ after you've discovered it. And the first of those two things is what you're doing right now on a Sunday morning. 
We believe Sunday morning services, Sunday morning gatherings are critical for that mission to be accomplished in our lives. We want to do everything we can to make Sunday morning a time where we all would feel safe in bringing visitors to our church services. We want to do all that we can to make sure when they would come, they would feel the love of Jesus Christ through His children. We want to do everything we can to make it an awesome experience. Not a performance, but a real experience in, in, in knowing and discovering who God is through the teaching that takes place on Sunday morning. It starts at 9 o'clock in the adult Sunday school and all the classrooms around the building. Time of prayer, which actually starts a pre-service prayer, starts at 8 o'clock. The worship service starts at 10 o'clock where we want to provide an opportunity and we think it's a critical opportunity to worship corporately at passionate singing, experiencing the presence of God as we worship Him, sound biblical teaching, personal prayer ministry if it's needed or desired. All of those things are part of our Sunday morning experience and we really believe, not because we want to see the chairs filled, we really believe it's a critical part of helping people discover and experience the abundant life in Christ. We need to be here. And we need to be bringing other people here. If there's a reason, if there is something about our experience that we need to eliminate because it's offensive, we want to eliminate it as long as it doesn't compromise the Word of God and our DNA. So if there's a reason that you wouldn't feel comfortable inviting friends or family to a service on Sunday morning, let me know what it is. The leaders can talk about it, deal with it. But we think we need to be here on Sunday mornings. And the second thing that we think is critical, a part, a part of developing, discovering, and experiencing knowing Christ and that abundant life that's there, are the life groups. We believe that every single person in the church needs to be in a life group. Not should be, needs to be. And part of the reason a lot of you aren't is we haven't done a very good job of communicating that and we've made it hard for you to even figure out how to get in one sometimes. We're working at that. It'll get better. Why do we think it's so important that you need to be in a life group? Because that's where you're going to study the Word of God deeper. That's where you're going to develop relationships and fellowship with other like-minded believers and it's going to be a safe place in somebody's home or a building where you can even bring friends. That they can connect and see that all Christians just aren't weird. Just some of us are weird. A place where you can discover your spiritual gifts. We believe as a church, every single person in this room, in this building, has spiritual gifts that God has deposited in you. And He's done them for a very clear and specific reason. That you might use your gifts to carry out the work of the ministry. And in small groups, we want to provide a place where you can discover those spiritual gifts a place where you can experiment with your spiritual gifts, and a place where we can discover ways that we can serve outside of our building, outside in our community and wherever it might be, using those gifts that each one has. So that's why we think it's critical that people be involved in the Sunday morning service, service as often and as regularly as you possibly can, and why you should be in a life group. Now, if you're not in a life group, and you want to be, which I pray you do, there's a list out there. Just to put your name on that list. We're in the process of working through this whole thing with life groups, but we need to know who's not in them and who wants to be in them. So I'd encourage you, when you get into the foyer, 
sign up to be in a life group. Now, if you're like me, you think, why do we need all that? First of all, let's go back to why do we exist? To help you, to help me discover and experience abundant life in Christ. Why do we need help? Is God too small? No, that's not it. God's big enough. He doesn't need any of our help. But he has designed it for his church, his people, to play an active role in helping other people discover and experience the abundant life in Christ. Really, that's another way of saying, go into all the world and make disciples. Sunday morning, we want to see people come and connect with God. Accept Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. Develop relationships with people in the body of Christ. So we can grow in that relationship. And people need help with that. One of the reasons they need help with that, and I want to offer this as my thought on this, one of the reasons people need help with it is because the message that they're looking for, the answer that they're looking for to the the tough questions in their life is a foolish message. And it makes no sense to most of them. It doesn't make any sense. And they need to see that message lived out just as much as they need to hear it spoken. And Christ and God and His wisdom and in His power has come up with this plan and He's given us the Holy Spirit so that we can help by speaking and sharing but also by living it out. And that's what we need to do. Because we're not called just for us as individuals to discover and experience the abundant life in Christ. We are called then to make sure we are equipped to help other people discover and experience the abundant life in Christ. The world is looking for that life, whether they know it or understand it or not. Whatever way they phrase it, whatever it is they're looking for, their meaning in life, their solution to this problem, whatever it is, the answer comes back to our foolish message. And I'm going to share that foolish message with us in just a minute. But I want to share a little illustration first to give you a picture. Because the foolish message that we're talking about is the cross. There's a little girl wearing a beautiful, shiny, gold cross on a gold chain around her neck. Just as pleased it could be about that piece of jewelry. And an older man walking by sees this shiny cross hanging around the little girl's neck and and he stops the little girl and says, Little girl, don't you know that the cross that Jesus was crucified on wasn't a shiny, pretty cross? As a matter of fact, it was an ugly, wooden cross. And the little girl looked up at the man and smiled. And she says, I know that. But I was taught in Sunday school that whatever Jesus touches, he changes. And that's the whole story about having the experience of discovering and experiencing the abundant life in Christ. When Jesus touches us, we should be changed. And the reality is the world is looking for that. The text we're going to look at is in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting in verse 18. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to follow along. Otherwise, it should be on the screen. 1 Corinthians 18 through 25. It says this, For the message of the cross is foolishness 
to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligent, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world, through its wisdom, did not know him. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. The Jews, they demanded miraculous signs. And the Greeks, they looked for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than any man's strength. Now, if you would go back and you reread that section of Scripture, you'll see, I believe, three distinct groups of people being talked about. It first declares that our message is foolishness to those who are perishing. Who are the people that are perishing? Anybody that has not accepted Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior is the perishing. Sadly, it's most of the world. And to most of the world, what does Paul write? It's foolishness to them. Our message is foolishness to the perishing. And he talks about three groups of people. The first group is the Jews, the religious people of the day, God's chosen people. The second group of people are the Greeks. And then the third group of people are the believers. Us. I want to look at those three groups quickly. And I want you to see, I hope you will see, that this was written over about 2,000 years ago. And nothing's changed. We may not call them all Jews. We may not call them all Greeks. But I believe you're going to see that this group of people is still prevalent today, and actually, in some cases, it's growing today at a bigger rate than it probably ever has. So let's look at the Jews first. Now, there's a scripture in, first, in uh, John, the Gospel of John. It's not, on the, on the, not going to be up there. But the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 11, it simply says this. He, meaning Jesus, came to that which was his own. In other words, he came to his own people, and it says... They didn't receive him. Why didn't they receive him? Well, our text that we just read gives us a picture of why they didn't receive him. It says the Jews were looking for something. What were they looking for? Miraculous signs, miracles. It's like he's saying, if Jesus would have came doing miraculous signs and miracles, they'd have believed him, right? Wrong. Because that's exactly what he did. He came and he fed the 5,000 with a few fish and a few loaves of bread. He went to lepers whose bodies were rotting and he touched them and healed them and their bodies were white as snow. It was perfect. The sick, he healed them. The lame, he straightened their broken, messed up limbs. The dead, he raised people from the dead. And yet it says the Jews were looking for a miracle. So what in the world were they looking for if those things weren't good enough? I think we need to remember that. 
Because we're all thinking, if Jesus would just show up and do a few miracles, man, alive, we could save the whole Lyon County. No, we wouldn't. Why? For the same reason the Jews. They weren't looking for the kind of miracles Jesus did, and they weren't looking for someone doing the miracles, proclaiming the message Jesus was proclaiming. They were looking for somebody to come in on a great big white stallion and rally the Jewish people. Let's form an army. Let's do battle with the Romans. And let's establish the kingdom of David. That would be a miracle. And you know what? If Jesus would have came and did that, they'd have made him king. They were looking for someone to come and do miraculous things that would be powerful and successful. They were looking for victory by their definition. But what did they run into? The cross. They were looking for uh, success. They were looking for victory. They were looking for power. And what did they get? They got a cross. Man, there was no more ultimate example of everything, just the opposite of what they were looking for. The cross didn't look like victory. It looked like defeat. It didn't look like success. It looked like failure. It certainly didn't look like power. It looked like weakness. They were looking for miracles, and they ran into the cross. And it says to the Jews, the cross was a stumbling block. They couldn't get over their preconceived ideas. They kept stumbling over the cross. And the Jews had a second problem. Besides looking for miracles that were victorious and successful and powerful, they also had a false concept of salvation. What was their concept of salvation? The law. Works. They felt if they would keep the law, if they would do the works, if they would do enough good things, they would be saved. They didn't need a Savior. That's the danger of that thinking, this works teaching that's out there today just like it was 2,000 years ago. If we do enough good things, we'll get to heaven. It doesn't work that way. If you think that way, you have no need of a Savior. The Jews didn't need a Savior. They were keeping the law. Well, they acted like they were keeping the law. We all know they weren't keeping the law. They were acting religious, smug and arrogant, especially the religious leaders. And they were failing miserably at keeping the law. So it wasn't only a stumbling block because of the way the Messiah came. They had a false idea of what salvation was all about. They had works. Doesn't that sound familiar? If you think your good deeds are going to get you to heaven, you don't need a Savior. If you think good works are going to get you to heaven, our message is foolishness to the world. Why listen? If all they have to do is tip the scale to the side of good works when they stand before God, they think they're in. The cross was definitely a stumbling block for the Jews. Then we come to the Greeks. What does it say about the Greeks? It says to the Greeks... They searched for wisdom. Now, Bob touched a little bit on some of this this morning in adult Sunday school. 
the Greeks were the intelligentsia of the day. I mean, they thought they were all it when it came to thinking, new thoughts. As a matter of fact, some of the great minds that are even talked about today, that are even read today, were Greek. Men like Socrates and Plato and Aristotle, they were Greek. They were great thinkers of the day. Matter of fact, this quote of Socrates, I love it because it resonates today in what we hear today so often. Socrates said this thousands of years ago The secret to a successful society is education. If we can just give everybody a good education, it must follow that the world will get better and better. How's that working? We have never had as much education as we have today. And don't get me wrong, I am not saying there's something wrong with education. The problem isn't the education. The problem you run into here is called sin. And all the amount of knowledge in the world will not deal with sin. Just think. We spend billions of dollars thinking we're going to educate our society into a more godly society. Of course, they won't use that term, godly. We'll, we'll just have to call it something else. We can't even use the word moral, right? I don't, guess I don't even know what word to use. A society that runs better. How's that? And it's broken. And it looks like it's getting worse and worse and worse as we throw more money at it. If education does their part, assuming they did... The church has to be doing its part. And if we're not out there declaring the truth, no matter how foolish they think it is, we're not doing our part. Not only declaring it, but living it, walking it, being a living, breathing example of what it looks like to be a Christian, someone who has discovered and is experiencing the abundant life in Christ. In Acts 17, you don't have to turn there, but in Acts 17, Paul is on one of his missionary journeys. And he's going to Athens. Now there's a, there was a, a, a statement or a, a line in ancient Athens that went something like this. You'll, it's more easy in Athens to discover a God than it is to find a man. What they're saying is, there were gods and idols everywhere in that city. Everywhere. And Paul is walking around Athens, the city of the day. It was the crown jewel of Greece. It was the the place of all the brilliant thinkers. And then there was a particular place in Athens we call Mars Hill. It's called Mars Hill in your Bible. And Mars Hill was basically a little hill kind of in the center of the city of Athens. And all the really, really, really brilliant thinkers and philosophers, at least in their own mind, Well, go gather on that hill. And here's what the Bible says. They'd all go gather on Mars Hill every day and they'd sit there all day long thinking and talking about what they were thinking. (laughs) Sounds like college. (laughs) Philosophers. Brilliant thinkers. And they were. And then they heard there was this guy named Paul in town. And he had a little different message they hadn't heard before. And if I'm a curious thinker and I'm an intellectual, I'd like to know what he's telling us. 
Well, Paul is also figuring this out. and He says, I'm going to Mars Hill. But as he's walking by and walking through the city, he's seeing all these gods and idols everywhere, and he sees one that catches his attention. The name of this one was simply the unknown God. Paul jumped at the chance to tell them about the unknown God. So he goes up to this group and walks up this hill and all of these brilliant thinkers and, and he, he breaks the ice by saying, I see you've got an unknown God. Let me tell you about that unknown God. I know that unknown God that you don't know about. And he proceeds to talk to them and tell them about God, about Jesus. Now you can imagine, I think, all these brilliant thinkers sitting there listening to Paul's story and and going, virgin birth? This guy's an idiot. God? God putting on flesh and walking around on earth? None of our gods would be that stupid. A God so weak that puny men could nail him to a cross and he'd have to suffer and die? Are you serious? What kind of God is that? He died on the cross and was raised from the dead and then he vanishes. Can you see how it would be absolute foolishness to these thinkers? Because it made no sense. Our message doesn't make any sense to the human mind. But it makes perfect sense. It's the wisdom of God to those who believe. So the Greeks, as Paul is saying this, he says, you know what? The message made no sense. It was foolishness. But that wasn't the end of their problem. Just like the Jews who wanted miracles and expected a certain type of Messiah, they had a false expectation or definition of salvation. The Greeks had a wrong idea about salvation also. Matter of fact, they believed in the eternal soul. Well, they had a good start. That's as far as it got. They believed man had an eternal soul, and when someone died, everybody went to be with the gods. And when you were up there and you moved in with the gods, if they discovered you weren't quite good enough, you couldn't stay with the gods. So you were reincarnated. And you were sent back to earth in another body and you got a do-over. And this would continue over and over and over until you got it right. The reality is we'd still be doing it over and over and over. Because we can't do it right. But the problem with this belief was, in their mind, everybody was going to heaven. Ever hear about that today? Universalism is growing like crazy. What's it about? Everybody's going to heaven. It's all the same God. Don't worry. We're all going. If you're all going to heaven, who in the world needs a Savior? The Jews didn't need a Savior. Works were going to get them in. The Greeks didn't need a Savior because they were all going anyway. And then there's the third group. The believers. The saved. And it's amazing. You take this message that was nothing more than a stumbling block to the Jews. Absolute foolishness to the Greeks. And yet... It says, to those who are saved, it is the wisdom and the power of God. 
And in there he talked about how God's, you know, God's most foolish moment is wiser than the wisest man's greatest moment of wisdom. God's weakest moment, if there was such a thing, is greater than man's most powerful moment. And he says, yet to us that are saved, those of us who God has drawn, who is called, he's prepared our hearts, prepared our minds, to us who understand, it's the wisdom and power of God. What is the message Paul's talking about? It's simple. In verse 18 he said, it's the message of the cross. That's our message. It's the cross. The death, resurrection of Jesus. In verse 23, Paul says, we preach Christ crucified. The world doesn't like those messages. We preach Christ crucified. That's the message. The cross, that's the message. It's our foolish message. It's the message we call the gospel. It's all about the cross. When you think about it, The cross is the medium through which God released his power of salvation. It's the cross. The power to overcome sin, it was the cross. The power to give the hopeless hope, it was the cross. The power to give joy to those who have no joy was the cross. The power to get rid of guilt and shame, it's the cross. The power to remove all fears, it was the cross. Basically, the power to remove all the guilt and pollution of sin was the cross. That's the message. And I believe those are the things the world's looking for. And if we were all going to be real honest and transparent and say, you know, which one of us got set free of some of that garbage, we'd all be standing up. That's what the world wants. Now, I don't want anybody to think that the church, Victory Christian Church, that means all of us, in and of our own strength can do anything to make someone discover and experience the abundant life in Christ. So when we say we exist to help you discover and experience the abundant life in Christ simply means we want to do everything that we can to expose people to the gospel message, expose them to believers, the fellowship of believers, expose them to the love of Christ, to give them opportunity to respond to what the Holy Spirit has to be doing in their heart. The Holy Spirit still calls. The Holy Spirit Spirit still woos. But it's the church's job to be the mouth of Jesus and speak, to be the hands and feet of Jesus and to serve. We are called to do that. So when you look at our foolish message, obviously it's not a really foolish message at all. It's only foolish in the mind of those who are perishing. But the lost, the perishing, still need to hear it and they still need to see it. That's our foolish message. Which brings me back to kind of where I started. Why do we exist as a church? Victory exists to help you, to help me discover and experience the abundant life in Christ. And not only to help us discover it and experience it, but to open that door of discovery. What is the door? Jesus is the door. 
We want to be able to expose as many people to Jesus Christ, the cross, his death and resurrection as possible so that they could walk through that door and discover the abundant life and then join us on this path we're all on because none of us are to that place yet of experiencing it in its fullness. But we're on the path to experiencing the abundant life in Christ. And that should be on the forefront of all of our minds. If someone ever asks you, what's Victory Christian Church all about? I hope you can tell them what it's all about. When you hear somebody say, you know, you really missed you in church Sunday. You really need to be there. You know we're not trying to fill a chair. You really do need to be there to continue to discover, to grow, that you might experience the abundant life in Christ in greater and greater ways and become more equipped to help others do it. And when we ask and and say, you know what, you really need to be in a life group. Gee, we don't get any award stickers or anything for the number of life groups we have. We need to be in them. So we're going deeper. So we're connecting deeper relationally. We're learning more. You're discovering your gifts. And we're learning to serve in various ways be the hands and feet of Jesus. And when we are doing those things, we are growing in our relationship with Christ. We are growing in our relationship with brothers and sisters in Christ. But as important, we are being equipped that you and I can help others discover and experience the abundant life in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the message that the world considers foolishness. That in that message of the cross, there is a power to bring new life. In your infinite wisdom, you came up with a plan that no one could have imagined. A perfect plan of salvation that dealt with our sin once and for all. Lord, I thank you and praise you that you allow us as your children to have a part in helping others to discover and experience the life that we are tasting of. God, I pray that you would put it in our heart and in our mind to to always be aware that the world is looking, the world is perishing. Our message to them is foolishness, but they need to hear it anyway. That you would continually be convicting us and reminding us by your Holy Spirit the way that we live our life matters. We should be a living, breathing testimony of godliness. God, we pray for your grace and your mercy in our lives to accomplish these things. Father, that we as individuals can just continue on that path to the destiny that you have for us in Christ. That we as a church continue to walk out the destiny that you have for Victory Christian Church. God, that we can see those things accomplished in southwest Minnesota that you have called this place, this church, these people to. God, we pray that we would see the culture and spiritual climate of southwest Minnesota changed because of your church. And God, needless to say, we need your help in every single thing, every single thing we do. Without you, it's a waste of time. So God, we just throw ourselves at your mercy. 
and cry out for your grace. Empower us to accomplish the task that you've called us to. And we pray you'd receive all the glory and honor in it. In Jesus' name, amen.